Hey, hello, everyone, and welcome to the Viking Wealth Show and Multifamily Freedom webcast. I'm your host, Ravi Gupta. Today, we are in uncertain times. The stock market is volatile, inflation is on the rise, wages, gas prices, interest rates are going up, real estate prices are going through the roof. All of this is happening while the Ukrainian-Russian war and the COVID pandemic are looming in the background. How do we make sense out of all this? Should we be, should we be buying and selling assets? Should we hunker down and keep cash on hand? How do we navigate the stock market? Well, that's why we have Greg Dickerson joining us today. Greg is a serial entrepreneur, real estate developer, coach, and mentor. He has bought and developed and sold over 250 million in real estate assets, built and renovated hundreds of custom homes and commercial buildings, developed residential and mixed use subdivisions, and started 12 different companies from the ground up. Greg currently coaches and mentors some of the top entrepreneurs, real estate investors, and real estate developers around the world helping them start, grow, and scale their businesses, raise more capital, and do bigger deals. Greg's current clients have over $2 billion of assets under management and deals in progress. Greg is an expert on the topic of entrepreneurship, leadership, and real estate, and is regularly interviewed on some of the top real estate investing and business podcasts today. And I can personally say that I've known Greg for years now, and whenever I'm uncertain, I turn to him because he has the uncanny gift to process a tremendous amount of information and advise with amazing clarity. So that being said, welcome, Greg. Hey, Ravi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So um, let's let's get right to it. Um, I really enjoy your takes on just the general state of the economy. So can you tell us currently what's happening in the market right now, and then maybe just in general terms, and then focus on multifamily real estate? Yeah, so the economy, we're in a major shift right now. The tipping point um, of coming off of the biggest quantitative easing, uh, easy monetary policy that we've seen in the history of the Fed since 2008-9, great financial crisis. Uh, it's been basically almost zero interest rate policy and QE. So for the first time since then, we're going into QT and we're raising interest rates in the face of you know, the highest inflation that the country's faced in a long time. So we've got five things looking at us right now uh, from an economic headwind standpoint. You've got inflation, obviously we all know, the real effective rate of, of inflation at the consumer level is in the double digits, probably the high double digits. When you include gas and housing and just all of the things, uh, food, all of the things that we consume on a day-to-day -day basis that drives the economy globally. So that's the number one thing that we're facing right now that's uh, creating headwinds for the economy. And then you have the Fed rate policy. Like I said, we have QT now, meaning the Fed is no longer going to be pumping liquidity into the economy. And then um, we have raising, you know, rising rates. So the Fed has to raise rates to try to get a hold of inflation. They feel like the economy is strong enough to significantly raise rates without creating a problem. Um, you also have the pandemic still rearing its ugly head in Asia and Europe. China is uh, on lockdown in a lot of areas, which is creating some more supply chain bottlenecks uh, and things like that, which is also going to help, you know, increase and add to inflationary concerns. And then, as you mentioned, we have the war uh, in Ukraine and the potential for a global world war breaking out. Uh, so, you know, we haven't seen anything like that for 80 years. So, uh, you know, these are the things that the economy is looking at. It's the stuff that the investors are looking at and the things that are going to drive decisions, monetary policy and our decisions at the consumer level moving forward based on um, the data and the repercussions of all of these things which by the way, the markets haven't priced in any of that. All the markets have priced in so far is that quarter point rate hike. They have not priced in the effects of anything I just discussed. 
So overall, you're saying things are looking good. Is that it? Yeah, is that absolutely. Good? Is that okay? Okay, good. I just want to just want to make sure I got it. Got it correct. Um, okay. Well, thank you yeah, for that. I mean, kidding, that's right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm I'm absolutely kidding. That was that's not that's not the truth. I mean, there's a lot going on. A lot of good yeah, things. Yeah, it's just uncertainty. It's just you know. Yeah. So good times never last. Bull markets. Bad times never last. Bear markets. Right. It's peaks right. and valleys and cycles. Obviously, the worst thing that we're potentially facing is a global nuclear conflict. Um, we haven't faced that since, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis. This is a real threat in a real situation right now. So that's very different than anything we, we've ever faced. But these other issues are cyclical, right? It's peaks and valleys. Uh, so, you know, it's not doom and gloom. It's just understanding the environment you're in um, and, you know, uh, calculating risk, protecting yourself. What is risk? Risk is preservation of capital. Risk management is preservation of capital. So that's the first thing that you need to be thinking about and looking at at all times is understanding risk because many people, probably a lot of people on this call today have never seen a bear market. They've seen market go up only. They've seen QE only. They've seen zero interest rate policy only. They've seen zero risk environment. That's what we've been in since 2009 and 10. That's why everything is shot through the roof and why assets are in a, are in a mega bubble all around the world at all levels. Okay. Um, and there's a lot of info you packed in there. In fact, just you know, exactly what you spoke about is what we're going to talk about and we're going to break it down to, to into, into multiple levels. So if you didn't understand some of that, don't worry, guys, we'll get we'll get to it. So um, let's let's talk. Up, let's just talk about basics. Now, you mentioned QT and QE. And for those who don't understand those concepts, can you can you just explain those in a nutshell? Yeah. Quantitative easing. So that's you know where the Fed. So monetary policy is one thing. That's interest rates. And quantitative easing is where the Fed purchases assets, either treasury bonds or mortgage-backed securities to put liquidity into the market. And that's, that's been our problem for the last you know, eight, nine, 10 years is we have a liquidity crisis, too much liquidity. So QT is how the Fed pulls liquidity out of the market by offloading those assets back into the market. So they buy treasuries and bonds from banks and investors to put you know, liquidity into the market so that credit loosens and there's money flowing in the economy to be lent out. So to reverse that, you have to sell your assets and, and you know, suck the liquidity back out of the market and put those assets back out there. Okay. Um, so just, you know, kind of to, to simplify it even further, it's, you know, quantitative easing is basically the process of printing money and purchasing assets. And then quantitative tightening is selling those assets and then, then pulling that money. Yeah. Back. So even easier than that. QE is pumping liquidity into the markets. That's why you've been able to borrow so much money so easily. QT is pulling liquidity out of the markets, which tightens credit, meaning it's going to get more difficult to borrow money. Now, um, that you know, with, with those factors in place, I mean, is it possible that the quantitative tightening will have such an effect that all the capital or a majority of the capital that was pumped into the economy is pulled back? I mean, is that possible? Does that happen? Well, it's you know, it's the Fed's balance sheet, so it's trillions of dollars. So that's what they're right. after. You know, they they need to unload trillions of dollars back into the market. That's what the markets are more afraid of right now than the interest rate policy, because that tightens credit, which shrinks the amount of capital that's available, which means deals don't get done, companies can't borrow, uh, things like that. So you know, and putting that together at the same time you're raising rates. Last time we, we saw anything potentially like that was 2017, 2018. And you saw what happened there. You know, the markets came to a screeching halt, sold off about 20%. Uh, the real estate market came to a screeching halt. Uh, so it was, it was pretty, you know, interesting times. And you're seeing the bond markets now react to the potential of 
of you know rising interest rates and QT. Okay. The flight okay, to so, safety. So people buying bonds right. and bond rates going up. That's because investors are looking at the safety play. They're they're right. expecting you know poor economic conditions, so they want to go. They want to buy bonds to kind of hedge inflationary environment and tight credit. Okay. Okay. Excellent. Okay. So that's one of the topics we'll talk. We'll we'll hit up in just a little bit. Let's start off and get to a little bit more detail about the war. Um, I mean, this is a big question, important question that we get often is how does the Ukrainian war affect the market? So what is your take on that? So the issues of the war are normally wars aren't that, you know, uh, don't impact markets as much, but this one's very different because it's impacting commodities. So wheat, fertilizers, uh, and now with the sanctions on Russia and their elimination from the global economy, you know, albeit they were a small player in the global economy, their economy is not that big, but it's still an impact on other countries in Europe. They were a big player in Europe. They're not a big player globally uh, in terms of their GDP. So, um, you know, we're going to see significant acts, you know, uh, impact from commodities, which we're already seeing and, you know, fuel prices, oil prices, energy costs, things like that, especially as we pivot away from Russia and take them out of the world economy. Uh, you're seeing, you know, obviously they're the largest wheat producers, Ukraine, and they're still projecting they're going to be able to yield 70% on their crops, but they can't plant in, in preparation for next season. And obviously with, you know, this is morbid, but with the, you know, the dead bodies everywhere, that's going to create a problem that they need to get rid of in those fields before they can recultivate and do those things. So, I mean, they've got a lot of issues going on over there, plus all of the damage from weapons and, you know, artillery and things like that. It's going to take some work before they can really, you know, sow for the next crop. So those types of things are having an impact. Uh, and then, you know, that's just right now without any escalation and the issues with, with these impacts are also deglobalization. I mean, another risk is deglobalization. So as Russia is isolated, other countries, you know, that are potentially chiming in and not supporting, uh, you know, that are supporting Russia, not supporting the European alliance and things like that can potentially get themselves isolated. So you're seeing some deglobalization de start to happen where countries are saying, wait a minute, we can't be dependent on, uh, you know, these, these, you know, nations like Russia and China and these other nations. And, uh, so there's a big, you know, deglobalization movement out there that could potentially weigh heavily on the economy as well. So those are just some of the risks right now without any escalation in terms of the conflict itself. Okay. Um, so, I mean, what you're, what you're saying, obviously the prices of goods are going to go higher because of the sanctions in place. Um, this creates consumer uncertainty and that affects the markets. There's pressure on inflation as well. Um, but I think, you know, one of the, one of the key points you made is this is, this is going to be a transient issue. Now, obviously there's global concerns, bigger concerns regarding, you know, uh, world war or nuclear war or things of that sort. And that's, um, that will have a tremendous, obviously a tremendously negative effect, but in general, and I'm going to share this graphic with you all, um, if you are watching on a video, um, and I apologize for the way this looks. Um, this was actually, we were trying to get the slides from this presentation that we sat through, um, but we weren't able to, and this is, um, these are just pictures of the slides. So it's a little skewed here, but um, basically what you can see is uh, the G7 unemployment on the y-axis here and uh, years on the x-axis. And as these different geopolitical events occurred, you can see that, you know, unemployment sort of 
would drop and then it would rise and drop. And it wasn't necessarily correlated to these events. I mean, it's not like a, you know, an a- absolute pivot point where these, you know, cause something to go skyrocketing up or down. So, you know, these are, these are kind of generalizations, but in general, as, as Greg mentioned, geopolitical events don't, don't cause long-term effects, but in the short term, certainly something to be very wary of and, and consider. Um, well, thanks, Greg, for that. And then yeah. uh, let's- And they can be economic drivers because you have to replace all the munitions that are being uh, destroyed and used. Uh, so, you know, there's a certain amount of industry that, that will gain, you know, from these issues, but we haven't seen anything like this since World War II. So you can't really measure the effects. It's just been so long. And it's a very different economy now than it was even in World War, you know, even 20 years ago um, from a global standpoint. So it's, we don't know. We just don't know what the effects are going to be. But generally, they haven't been that impactful. Okay. Um, okay. And then let's move on to interest rates. Um, can you explain what's happening with interest rates and why, why they're increasing? Yeah. So the Fed, you know, has to, there, there are two mandates of the Fed, uh, stable prices, full employment. So the only way that the Fed can impact uh, prices is with interest rate policy. So they're having to raise interest rates to curb inflation. And the Fed thinks that the economy is strong enough, given the labor market, GDP, growth, things like that, that they can raise rates significantly without impacting um, the economy. But we know that the only way that you can affect inflation is to create demand destruction, which means you have to slow growth. So you almost have to put the country, the world into a recession in order to curb inflation uh, because you have to reduce demand. So right now we have record demand, pent up demand at all levels. We're a consumer driven economy globally around the world, but the United States especially. Uh, So the only way to curb that is to raise interest rate, which tightens credit and reduces the amount of money that you can borrow to consume, because that's generally what people do is they borrow to consume. You're living on, you know, not you specifically, but people, credit cards, you know, equity from their houses, their stock portfolios going up. You know, things like that, asset appreciation. Um, you know, it's basically a credit driven environment that we're in. Companies use credit to expand and grow and things like that. So the idea is to raise inflation so that credit markets tighten, the cost of borrowing goes up. So that should slow growth and demand enough to bring prices back into check. And you know, the easiest way to see that impact at a real, at a real-time pace, just look at the housing market, look at all the reports. The housing market is starting to slow down nationwide. And we're having, you know, obviously there's, you know, it's hyper-local and there's pockets everywhere, but just with a 1% increase in mortgage rates, it's over 4% now. We're starting to see reports everywhere of record sales uh, decline, you know, pending sales decline, mortgage applications decline, all those types of things, um, you know, around the world. If we get to 5% or around the United States, we get to 5%, you'll see things just fall off a cliff basically in the real estate market. Interesting. Housing market. Yeah, and I, I remember um, back in the, I think it was the 2000s, interest mm-hmm. rate was around 8% at that time. Yeah. Um, and that was the highest it's been for, for you know, as long as I can remember. And then it sort of slowly settled down and down. And historically, I mean, 5% historically is relatively low, correct? I mean, it, yeah, it, oh, it is. go higher. Yeah, my, I mean, I'm 54. My first mortgage was almost 10%. And, you know, I was used to paying 6 to 10% for, you know, most of my loans for commercial real estate and for development and then residential homes, you know, year-round primary residence. The problem is the biggest demand um, demographic for housing are, are millennials, and they haven't seen those rates. All they've seen is, is basically twos and threes. 
So, right. it, you know, it's that psychological threshold, number one, and it's affordability, number two, because prices have adjusted to the rates at, you know, two, two and three percent. So, you know, that payment, just to give you an example, if you're borrowing, if you can pay $2,000 a month and your, your loan after your down payment is, is uh, at 3% is 474,000. At 4%, all you can borrow after your down payment for 2,000 a month, uh, it, goes, it goes to uh, 418. At 5%, it goes down to 372. That's a $100,000 difference in what you can buy. So uh, that's what's happening is that, you know, the millennials that, have, that are now the, the home buyers, they think that 5% is a bad interest rate because they've seen twos. So they're just like gas prices, right? Everybody's got this $3 threshold for gas prices. Anything under three, we think it's good. You get over three, we start feeling it. Now we're over four in most areas. You know, some areas are five, six, seven, but it's those psychological thresholds, but more importantly in housing, it's payments. You know, people are buying houses based on payments and houses have inflated based on interest rates so artificially that it's flipping where it, was, it used to be cheaper to buy than to rent. Now it's flipping back the other way around where, you know, with mortgage rates where they are and the housing prices that, uh, you know, that have skyrocketed so much, um, it's way cheaper to rent now than it is to buy in most areas. And that's going to continue to get worse as rates go higher, which housing will adjust to it. and It'll all come back down. Um, it'll take a while in the resale market for retail homeowners, you know, to, to adjust. But your home builders, that's where you're going to see the adjustment first, because what's happening, we're already seeing um, record levels of contracts falling out. So people contracting for a new house, um, when they get to the back end of that and they see where interest rates are now versus a year ago, they can't afford the house anymore. So they're backing out. So builders are going to be stuck with inventory. They can and they will liquidate inventory. So they'll be able to cut prices deeper and faster. So if you're looking to buy a house, um, give it about six months, closer to the end of the year, if rates get up to 5%, builders will be dumping inventory at record, record levels. And that'll be the first adjustment, probably 20, 30%. You'll see them drop, drop prices if they have wow. to, to get rid of inventory. Okay. That's a massive drop. Yeah. So, so um, just to sum that up, you know, or, or to, to break it down to a nutshell, you know, as we're seeing this inflation, um, the only way to stem that tide is basically to, to raise interest rates. And that's what's happening now. Demand um, destruction. Yeah. You'll you have, have runaway to you have inflation. impact demand. Yes. Okay. Um, and I'm going to share another graph with you. Um, again, I've yeah, that's the only tool they have to fight inflation. They have no other, there's nothing else they can do except make it more expensive to buy stuff. Right. Um, and then it, just as Greg was saying, you know, you could see these, these are the 30 year mortgage rates for homes um, over the course of two years. And you can see that how they were dropping steadily at a nadir of around 2.7 there. And then um, now they're back on the rise. So the, we're, we're getting back to the early 2020 levels here. And um, you know, if you could overlay uh, housing prices with that, you'd probably see the exact inverse of that chart. I see. Okay, excellent. And that that brings us to um, that brings us to inflation. So um, you know, we, we you discussed what causes inflation, kind of injecting all the capital in the market. Um, now, how? How do you think that it's going to affect the uh, multifamily multi or just real estate market in general? Right. So um, what drove inflation, you know, was pumping. So from a commercial real estate standpoint, an investment standpoint, what drives inflation in assets and the value of assets is too much capital looking for too many places to go. And as treasury yields dropped, it forced capital into riskier assets like commercial real estate. You know, that's an alternative asset class, a risk asset and stocks. 
So what's happening is it drove the competition up for those assets. And at the same time, with record, you know, with the, with the low interest rates, the Fed was buying mortgage-backed securities, okay? So that was giving Freddie and Fannie all of this liquidity that they had to put out into the market. And if you remember, you've probably heard from your lenders, yeah, we got 250 billion, we got to put out this quarter. So that's loans that they have to make because the Fed is buying those. And uh, when you have the largest buyer in the world of those assets, you got to put that money to work and, uh, and look for those yields. So you know, that's what has created the inflation in assets and specifically multifamily because multifamily is seen as the safest asset class. It's equivalent to a bond. And they're priced cap rates versus treasury yields. That delta, that spread between treasury yields and cap rates is what those institutional investors look at because they want a reward for that risk. So the higher that gap is between treasuries and the cap rate, the more attractive it is to force that capital into the real estate. Now, what we've seen lately in the multifamily sector is it's almost become a tech stock play. It's almost become a tech play where they're looking at forward earnings, forward growth of that asset, because right. cap rates have come down so much relative to the yields on treasuries. It's only been about a 1% spread here in the last year when normally it's normally about a 4 or 5% spread between 10-year and uh, cap rates in commercial real estate, multifamily. And I'm I mean, Greg, could I, could I um, interrupt just for one second? For those of you, who, who, those of us who don't know, what cap rates and treasury yields are. Can you just give us a brief definition of those? Yeah, so treasury, that's the 10-year treasury note, right? The 10-year treasury bond. Um, so, uh, you know, right now, I don't know, they're two and a half percent. They've been as low as like 0.9, I think, um, about a year or so ago. And cap rates is the, um, that's what represents the yield of a return on a commercial asset if you were paying cash. So uh, if it has a, if a million dollar property has a 5% cap rate, that theoretically means if you pay a million dollars in cash, you're going to get a 5% return on that cash, $50,000. So if you buy a bond that's yielding, you know, two and a half percent, you've spent a million dollars, you're going to get $25,000. So that's kind of how they look at it. I can buy a bond that's totally safe, that's going to yield $25,000 a year, or I can buy this multifamily property that's going to yield $50,000 a year, but I have risk because, you know, it's, it's not liquid like bonds. You can get in and out of those, you know, instantly. Real estate's not as liquid you know, from the asset standpoint, but those yields have tightened. Those, the spread between those yields have tightened to the point to where now what that uh, investor is looking at is what's the growth of that asset. So they're measuring, you know, future growth, especially a multifamily versus uh, what they can yield today. So it's a, you know, discounted cash flow moving forward. You know, what's the value of that dollar that I'm investing in this asset moving forward? So, uh, you know, it's a different game. And as treasuries, uh, rise that, you know, that gap is coming closer again. So it'll be really interesting to see how cap rates start to react and respond to that. Okay. So that, so that 10 year treasury and cap rate spread is something that people really focus on to see, you know, potentially what could happen to cap rates, you know, predicting into the future. Yeah. And historically, you can go back and look at this and research it for every 1% increase in treasury notes, the 10 year treasury note, yeah. Um, that represents about a th about a 0.3 increase in cap rates. So that's kind of how that's been relating. So about a 30% difference there. Okay. Um, now, some people, the thought is that real estate is a hedge against inflation as well. Could you explain right. that? Yeah. You know, like we, like we just talked about, so it's seen as a safe play that's going to grow over time and outpace inflation. 
So when you look at risk adjusted returns and you know inflation adjusted returns, you got to back out inflation right now. You know, unless you're taking real risk and developing, you're you're almost not going to outpace inflation. I mean, it's double digits, but uh, but you know, basically that's what it is. Is that you look at the return on that investment, you back out your inflation, you get that inflation adjusted return. Historically, real estate's been the only thing that's outpaced inflation. You know, uh, over and over, even the stock market hasn't really done it. Okay, and and uh, I also want to share a graphic so those of you can see it. Um, and exactly as Greg said, uh, when you look at the long-run capital values versus inflation, and this is this is hard to read, but it's um, there's office space here, retail, industrial, and then the black line here is inflation. So you can see, um, or sorry, it's the red line that's inflation. So you can see that inflation's on a steady rise here, um, and this is over um, these are over several quarters. Um, this was back in the 1980s, but you can see how. Um, the, the capital values have outpaced inflation. That's, that's typically what happens over time. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, and a hedge is protection. So just think of the word hedge, that's protection. How do I protect my cash against inflation, devaluation due to inflation? That's all that means. Right. So, I mean, you know, the, you, you have cash sitting there. Um, if it's sitting in a, in, in a, investment or a savings account or, or, or whatnot, it's depreciating in value over time. I mean, so it makes sense to actually put it into some kind of investment that is, that is hedging against inflation. Is that, is that a good way to think about it? Yeah, that's the thought. So, you know, the thought is from a you know, safety standpoint, that's why treasuries can be so attractive is if you have generally large sums of cash that you need to protect and you want to, you know, put somewhere while you're waiting to deploy somewhere, or you want to put it in something that's not going to de devalue uh, because of inflation, you want to put it in something that's either going to break even or grow against inflation. So, you know, that's, that's where you have to, you know, measure how much risk am I willing to take for that. And that's where the whole conversation of don't fight the Fed comes from. You know, don't fight the Fed means don't fight them going up, don't fight them going down. In other words, right, you know, the Fed has been the biggest buyer of treasuries driving prices down, driving yields down, on treasuries. So you don't want to fight that and try to outbid them. You go into risk assets. So that's what the Fed was doing. That's why the markets are up. That's why real estate's up because the Fed's been pushing that capital into those assets. Now we're flipped. You can't fight the Fed on the way down when they're coming out because now they're pushing you back into the safety trade and out of risk assets. That's why the stock market's deflating. That's why commercial real estate's going to deflate. That's why the housing market's deflating. I see. Okay. Um, and and uh, wh when do you see this happening? Like, how much time will this take before we start seeing this deflation? I mean, we're start starting to see some of it now. Yeah, it's happening now. The market was the biggest because the markets, you know, they react quickly. So you're starting to you're starting to see a little bit of adjustment there. You're seeing the bonds go up. That's that's a big forward-looking indication, and you're hearing a lot of a lot of talk about the yield inversion, the yield curve. So that's the spread between the ten-year Treasury and the two-year, meaning you know, short-term money should pay more than long-term money. Well, you know, long-term money now is paying almost as much as short-term money. Once long-term starts paying more than short-term, that yield uh, curve inverts. And that, over the history of the economy in the last 80 years, has accurately predicted recession every single time. But it could be six months or two years before that recession actually hits. Um, so it may, it may predict it, but we don't know when. So, uh, you know, when short-term money is looking for a safety play at higher rates than long-term money, that tells you there's a problem in the inflation that 
these investors are looking at. When I say these investors, I'm talking about the smartest, what they call the smartest money in the world. That's sovereign wealth funds, life insurance companies, pension funds, the long-term investors that, have, that are annuities, you know, that have to earn and have to preserve that capital base. You know, if you look at where they're going, that's a good indication of what's happening. So we're already starting to see it now, but we're just at the beginning stages of the unwinding. So what we're seeing now is deflation. So inflation coming out of the economy, we're deflating, and then we have to reprice. So we haven't repriced yet. Remember what I said. So what's priced in the markets right now is, is the current rate hike and the current state of the economy. So we've deflated to that level. We have not repriced the real effects of inflation and the real effects of the war on the economy. And you're starting to see that in some companies reporting earnings. You'll see it there. You're starting to see it interest rate rise and the housing market shifting, mortgage applications down, purchase applications down. Um, there's more houses in the pipeline, more housing in the pipeline now than ever before. 2008-9, same thing. We had this huge supply coming onto the market that all of a sudden liquidity dried up. People couldn't buy had all these houses hit in the market, destroyed it. We're not quite in the same position as we were back then because there's so much demand and so little inventory now, whereas we had tons of inventory back then. Um, you know, average days on market for a house back then was about six months, you know, and multifamily yeah. properties might take six months to a year to retrade. So, you know, things are trading in days now. But, uh, you know, so those are the things that are already starting to happen now. And depending on what kind of a knee-jerk reaction we get at the next Fed meeting when they do a 50-point uh, basis point rate hike, which they're going to do, um, and announce, um, you know, tapering of the assets that they purchased, releasing bonds and MBS back into the markets. Um, the last time we saw that was 2017, 2018. The market sold off in a big way. The real question is, is the Fed going to step back in this time and reverse course? And we don't know. We don't, all we know is what they did last time. And depending on what they do will depend on the course of, the, you know, things moving forward after that. So we're going to learn a lot next month. Okay. And, and, and one of my questions to you was about stock market volatility. And you, you, you really explained that in, in what's happening currently in the markets. But I mean, you know, there's a lot of, obviously, there's a lot of concern about what's happening. And um, is, there, is there any opportunity here? I mean, do you see anything, you know, any positive that's yeah, in the markets right now, you buy the dip, you sell the rip. So on the way up the last 10 years, it's been buy the dip, hold by the dip, hold by the, you know, it's been onward and upward, um, everything to the moon. Now, buy the dip, sell the rip. You don't stay in that position because markets are deflating and they're going to reprice. So the markets right now, some investors are still in the belief that the Fed is going to step in and not let the markets, you know, reprice you know, that that's what certain investors believe. The real smart money knows that the Fed has to let it go this time to a point. They might step in at a point, but they've got to let it go uh, for a while. So, you know, that's still, if you look at 2017, 2018, we still have 10, 15% from here down where the markets are to test the Fed's resolve and whether or not they're going to step back in. Um, so we're not there yet. And, you know, you'll see big, in bear markets, you see big violent bounces like we're seeing now and you see real, you know, extreme volatility. And, you know, there's a different mentality now in the markets. A lot of it's algorithmic, a lot of it's, you know, high frequency trading, but the biggest part of it is that psychology of everybody who's been conditioned to buy the dip on the way up because the Fed put was there. In other words, the Fed propping the market up. Um, and that's not there now. 
but markets still don't seem to believe that it's not going to be there moving forward. Okay. So, so the question is, is it, is it going to happen? Is that, is that quantitative tightening basically going to happen is, is what the question well, is? Well, yeah. Is the Fed, you know, yeah, right. Number one, are they going to unload the balance sheet? Number two, are they going to not step in if the market sells off another 10, 15%? And the markets okay. will test the Fed's resolve. It's going to happen. Okay. Um, so we were just, we were at a uh, multifamily conference just uh, about uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, and we heard from, from several expert economists in the multifamily real estate space, uh, not just multifamily, but um, just real estate space in general, commercial real estate space. And the, the projections were that 2022 was going to be a good year to invest in multifamily assets. The reason is, is as you mentioned, it's, um, real estate is a safe asset in inflation. There's a record housing shortage currently. Um, you know, the prices in housing... The housing prices are still climbing. They're, they're leveling off, but they're still climbing. Um, we're seeing lower cap rates, but they're offset by this tremendous rent growth. I mean, we're seeing like, you know, in some of our assets, we're getting a 20%, 25% year over year rent growth, which is really unprecedented. And um, we're still, even this year, we're still seeing some of that high rent growth. Um, and the projection is that we will continue to see some of that high rent growth. And then also there's unspent, um, there's unspent capital uh, currently, you know, the capital that's been injected into the economy, there's about 5 trillion um, that's unspent that people as consumers want to put out there. So there was some sense of opportunity and optimism that I got uh, from that conference, but I just want to get your take on it. Cause I feel like your take is a little bit more conservative and, you know, um, not, not as optimistic. Yeah, so real estate is an alternative asset class and multifamily within that class uh, of alternative assets is seen as the safest play in real estate. So that's why so much capital has been attracted to it over the last several years. And a lot of it has been life insurance, pension, pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, like I was talking about, instead of providing mortgages, becoming the owners. So that was the big fundamental shift that we saw probably five years ago where that really started to happen four or five years ago, where you really started to see cap rates decline. It's because of these big institutional buyers coming in when before they were just the, the loan, they were the lenders. So uh, yeah, to your point, the caveat I will put on everything you just said is that it's uh, hyper-local. Not every single market is experiencing what you said. There's some that are experiencing the exact opposite. So the Sunbelt is where you're seeing record rent growth, record you know housing shortages, record demand, record net migration, people are moving, you know, Arizona, Texas, uh, you know, the Carolinas, you know, Georgia, you know, North Carolina, Charlotte, Florida. So that's where things are exponentially increasing. But what we're also seeing is, and what you really have to be in tune to when you're looking at assets, when you're buying and you're thinking about your portfolio, people are moving because rents are too high. So when rents, you know, when their renewal comes up, and they're facing a $400, $500 rent increase, because that's what you're getting from new tenants, people are moving. So you need to make sure you've got a big enough wait list and you need to be testing that wait list. So keep raising rents every time somebody applies till you get pushback. And then you know, well, that's, that's as far as we can go. Obviously you wanna look at your comps and your competition and all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, it's what somebody's willing to pay. So if you just raise your rent quote, every time somebody walks in to apply, as long as they're okay with it, you know, you can keep pushing, but your existing tenants, you need to understand what the value of their leases are, what they're paying, and how much that represents as an occupancy level. And can you replace that? Because they will move and they are moving now. People aren't going to move over 100 bucks. They're going to move over 300. 
Yeah, right. they're going to move over 500. And we're already seeing reports of that, especially in Florida, where they just can't, they can't afford it with, especially with inflation. That's what's putting the pressure on. So, um, you know, I would just keep don't, don't wages that. increase along with that or, or with no. the increased wages, they're able to pay some of that uh, higher rent. No, I mean, inflation is way outpay, outpaced wage increases, especially with gas. I mean, the biggest, biggest, you know, pressure on people right now is food and fuel. Um, those two things alone, you know, inf- wages haven't kept up with that at all yet. They were kind of there before the gas issue and before the food issue that we've hit. Uh, once we get back to normal, get through the pandemic, supply chain opens back up, get the war, you know, over with and all that, you know, that stuff will level off. But right now it's putting tremendous pressure on people and wages are not keeping up with it at all. I see. Um, I do want to share another graphic with you all about uh, exactly as Greg mentioned, um, where demographics are reshaping real estate. Now, um, it is important to look at certain localities. I mean, if you're you know looking up here in the north, there is a um, less than 0% growth in some of these cities here. But as you go in the Sun Belt, which is this area here, you see these big green circles. There's a, a large amount of growth here. People, there's a lot, huge influx in these cities. In fact, we, we were visiting Phoenix and there just is not enough housing in Phoenix to maintain the, the population. It just, it, there's a massive shortage. So there's a tremendous growth here. Um, you know, the Texas, Texas area, uh, and, and especially Florida. And you're starting to see some of that taper in Florida a bit. Orlando still has uh, great growth, but some other areas, not as much. But uh, these are, you know, the Sun Belt here is, is exactly where people are moving to. Okay, um, so to sum it up, um, and then I'll open it up for questions. I mean, what, what would you recommend people to do with their money? I mean, if, you know, you've got, cash sitting there. You don't want it to necessarily sit in an account um, with an inflation, uh, in an inflation type economy. Uh, what should, what should people do? So number one, you need to um, think preservation of capital first and foremost. So if, you know, inflation right now is a real risk against capital, it's, it's, you know, eroding it, but that doesn't mean you have to deploy it and you have to put it work. So don't feel like you have to deploy just just because of inflation, because that'll cause you to make some mistakes. And, you know, just understand where we are in the markets in terms of the risk that you're willing to take and what you're willing to deploy that capital into. And cash is king. In economic turmoil, at the end of the day, cash is king. So you want to have a certain amount of cash available to take advantage of some opportunities. So when you see big sell-offs in the market, that's the time to get in and make some plays. Now, it might just be short-term. Again, buy the dip, sell the rip. That's the kind of market we're in right now. We're not expecting at this point in this environment with the five risks to the inflation that I just, you know, I mentioned at the beginning, those five risks that we're facing until those are gone, you can't expect a, you know, a bull market. You just can't because that, that was off the back of the fed. So right now you gotta, you gotta play it the other way. And if you're looking at, you know, investing in real estate or something like that, you know, it just needs to make sense. You need to make sure that if you're forward looking, in other words, if the deal is, you know, hinging on being able to increase income, you need to make sure that you can actually do that. And you need to understand, you know, if inflation gets a little bit worse, hard to imagine it getting much worse than it is right now, but it, it can get a little bit worse before it gets better. Uh, are you going to be able to, to do that? You know, you're going to be able to increase rent, you're going to be able to increase the income, you know, those types of things. Uh, interest rate is a real risk. So you need to understand if you're buying property, 
you know, what, what your um, maximum that that rate can go to. So you want to make sure you got rate caps on all your loans. If you're doing short-term floating, you know, debt, something like that, make sure you get a rate cap, buy a rate cap, whatever you need to do. If you're getting long-term, then you're fine. Um, you know, but you got to hedge that way with, you know, longer term debt or rate cap so that your rates can't go up with so much. And I don't see, you know, rates getting back much higher than, you know, five or 6% from a real interest rate standpoint on commercial loans and residential loans. So, you know, if you're factoring in normal stress testing, you're almost at those levels anyways, based on current rates. So, you know, just have those discussions with your lenders, make sure you understand what they're seeing, what their rate projections are things like that. But, uh, you know, don't feel like you have to do anything, but be ready to take advantage of opportunities because there's plenty of them out there right now. Okay. So just to sum that up, um, preservation of capital is key, right? So you want to maintain some cash in, in the event that there's an opportunity to invest in. And, and it's, if you feel that you're investing in a solid sponsor, um, in an area that is growing, um, maybe a, instead of a rent by necessity, but a rent by choice type um, opportunity where, you know, you have tenants that can handle the higher, um, higher hikes in, uh, rents, then that potentially would be a good investment. And that would be a good hedge in this type of environment. Is that, yeah, a, absolutely. Is that a fair to say? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Multifamily has been your safest bet. Then you've got self-storage behind that and industrial, you know, industrial is right up there. Okay. Excellent. Um, great. Well, Greg, that was an awesome overview. I mean, there's a ton of information that we covered here. Um, and uh, it, it was a really excellent overview of where we are today and kind of, you know, what we should anticipate in the next several months. And I just want to open it up to questions right now. So we've got a few questions. Nathan, um, feel free to uh, unmute and then um, ask any questions that we have. Yeah, I see one from Maria Wong. Would it? Uh, would you say that it's more prudent to invest in a project with a ten-year project projected hold or a, or a five-year hold? Um, you know, I would look at that five-year hold. What what is the risk? You know, and do they have to exit by five years? Can they go ten years? So, you know, uh, it really ten years doesn't mean really a whole lot unless it means it's going to take ten years for that you know investment to play out. So that's kind of what I would look at. And it's really up to you. You know, can you stay in it 10 years? Does it have to go 10 years in order for it to perform? Um, you know, that's kind of how you want to make that decision. It's really up to you in terms of when you need to exit and what you think your returns are going to look like. Excellent. Thank you. Any other questions? Uh, and then one thing I'll say for anybody who's in the stock markets, keep your eye on tech. You know, tech um, has, has drawn down quite a bit. It's been beat up. There's gonna be a lot of opportunities in tech, uh, tech stocks, and uh, you know maybe not right this minute, but I'd keep your eye in that sector. There's a lot. There's gonna be a lot of opportunities there. A lot of good companies that have been beaten up just just because of the risks, you know, that we talked about earlier. Are there any ones that you uh, think people should be focused on? I'm not gonna get into all that. <laughs> you know, they gotta okay. you know kind of take a look at it and understand yeah. where the good companies are because there's the meme stocks, you got AMC and GME and they're, they're kind of all over the map, but you know, companies like, uh, you know, Facebook and zoom and DocuSign and, um, you know, uh, company PayPal, you know, companies like that, they're Apple, you know, and, and Amazon, good companies that, you know, are going to be here and have good earnings that just been beat up just because tech's been beat up. Now that doesn't mean they're going to go back to where they were, 
It just means that they've dropped, you know, some of them, you know, 70, 80%. There's probably a little bit more downside to them because they're repricing back to normal uh, valuations based on, you know, trailing earnings and future earnings. And it was the pandemic play. A lot of the pandemic stocks, you know, the stay at home stocks that went through the roof are all repricing and, you know, coming back down to earth. And, you know, they'll pick up some steam as we move forward, you know, because those, those were good investments to begin with and they're not going anywhere. They're good, solid companies. But I would just look at that, you know, use the Warren Buffett theory. You know, what are you using every day, you know, in your life from a digital standpoint, from a consumer product standpoint? You know, what are those companies look like? What's, what is the pricing on their earnings? And, you know, look at those ratios and you just want to make sure you're buying value. So we're back to value now where it was all, you know, these exponential projections in five years, you know, with tech stocks. Okay, excellent. Um, we have a question from Sia, who has mentioned that, uh, and I'll read his question. He says, we have scaled very quickly over the past few months with assets under management around 215 million um, through partnership co-sponsor deals. It seems challenging finding good, good deals at Pencil in our target markets. What are your suggestions to help us be aggressive and take down two deals in 2022. Yeah, so number one, run them by your lender first. So let your lender take a look at them, see what they think, see what they suggest. Uh, you know, it's, it's very difficult. You have to get adjustable rate, interest-only loans to maximize cash flow right now. And then again, it's all future projected earnings. A lot of competition for the, for the assets, but at the end of the day, um, you got to be making a lot of offers. You know, that, that's what it takes. You need to expand your geography, be looking at old markets, you know, make a lot more offers. Uh, to be able to get a good look at a lot more deals. And then think about how you structure your deals in terms of your equity splits, you know, returns, things like that. You got, you got to get creative um, with those structures in order to make the deals work. And it all depends on what your goal is. So if you're a fee-based operator, in other words, if, you're, if your living is made on fees versus, you know, equity right now or cash flow, that's okay. You know, that's, that's, a, that's a service you're providing to your investors, but you need to understand what your business model is, what your needs are, and can you, you know, generate the returns for your investors and yourself over time? So then you can adjust, you know, the equity splits, you know, preferred returns, things like that, however you need to, to kind of make those deals work. But you need to be careful and, uh, you know, make sure that you understand that you can definitely hit those benchmarks and, you know, increase the income. Because at the end of the day, that's what it's all about. It's decreasing expenses and increasing income that drives the value of the property. Excellent. Thank you. Um, Marina Wong has a question, um, sort of more of a statement, but I think she was asking a question here. It says, most five-year hold projects use variable rate bridge loans and interest-only payments. Um, is the risk to these the refinance in five years? Yeah, absolutely. Because you don't know, number one, is liquidity going to be there? Because as credit tightens, you know, lending tightens. Uh, so, you know, you don't know what five years is going to look like. Uh, and, you know, you want to make sure that you have a rate cap, a rate cap, you know, so like I said, if you're doing a five year adjustable interest only, you know, variable rate loan, you want to make sure you buy a rate cap so it doesn't go through the roof on you if the Fed, you know, decides to get happy and really drive rates up. Um, and, you know, they can only go up so fast. So you can you can kind of stress test that and make sure it works. But um, there is risk in a five year interest only at the back end um, of, of whether or not you're going to be able to refinance that asset. And if, you know, depending on what the credit markets look like at the time, what the requirements are going to be, as we saw, a recent example was the pandemic, right? Credit requirements changed, reserves, interest rates, all of that. Some lenders backed out of the market completely. So you, you saw how quickly credit can dry up for these assets and how, you know, lending can dry up for these assets. So you just need to understand there's a risk in every asset in every market. You just need to understand it. 
be able to adjust when you get there. And also worst case scenario, you get to the end of five years and you know, lending dries up and credit markets dry up. These lenders aren't going to take the asset back. They don't want bad assets on their books. They'll work with you. They might extend, you know, things like that, but you might have to bring more capital to the table. You know, you might have to, you know, there may be some other things they want you to do, but you know, they're not just going to take it from you necessarily unless the world's coming to an end and the bank's failing. Okay. That's a good tip. Um, next question. Uh, Greg, you mentioned that wages are trailing inflation by a long shot. Do you see any increase in wages in the coming years to combat the difference? If, and if so, what would be the catalyst for that change? Yeah, so it's already happening now. So service industry, um, you know, I heard an interview today with the owner of La Bernardin in New York, one of the finest restaurants in the world. Um, and he's talking about his issues with staffing. So he lost a bunch of his staff in the pandemic and he's having to pay um, you know, 20 to 30% more now to get more staff and get new staff. So, um, you know, with fuel prices, we're seeing everybody having to raise their prices. And with the labor market, there's more jobs than there are workers. So companies are having to entice people with bonuses, with higher wages to bring them in. Google, uh, Google had a meeting the other day uh, responding to a, a survey they sent out to their company and everybody is asking for wage increases. So we're seeing it now. So the employees are starting to understand the leverage that they have and they're pressuring their companies to raise wages. So it's happening and it could potentially catch up a little bit, um, you know, but it takes a little bit of time for that to happen. And, you know, hopefully inflation will level off here, you know, pretty soon and, and we'll have an understanding of where the ceiling is on that. And then wages can then start to slowly catch up with that, but they're sticky. So the thing is, is that, you know, only so much inflation is going to taper because as wages go up, well, that, you know, cost of goods goes up and they have to pass that on to the consumer. So we're kind of in that area where things are going to escalate and just kind of stay there for a while. Very difficult for wages to go backwards unless the dynamic completely changes, you know, the market completely changes and companies start laying off, uh, which we could potentially see because the biggest risk we didn't really talk about right now is stagflation. So that's, you know, high inflation, low growth. So with what the Fed has to do, they have to create demand destruction uh, in order to correct inflation. So the risk is you go too far and then you slow growth to the point to where they start, you know, companies start laying off and they stop producing uh, or they, you know, realize how profitable they are running as lean as they are and they produce less to keep their prices up, then that can eliminate jobs. And then you start to get a reversal in wages. Uh, but right now it's already starting to catch up trying to, but it's still behind a little bit. Yeah. And, and uh, from my experience in Atlanta, where we have most of our properties, we, we are constantly battling um, with ma maintaining our, our employees and staff on site. Um, many of them are leaving for higher paying uh, positions, you know, same position, but like a 20, 30% uh, wage increase. And we are also giving our employees wage increases. So, and we're seeing it across the board in um, Atlanta and some of these positions like maintenance techs and those types of people, they actually are, you know, we're doubling their salary, in fact, um, from what it was just a couple of years ago. So certainly we're seeing that. Yeah. Interesting times. Yeah. Okay. I think that that's about it. Well, thank you, Greg. This was very informative and really appreciate your time and energy and uh, educating all of us. Yeah, absolutely. And again, I'm positive. I'm opportunistic. So, you know, bad times never last. Good times never last. This is just cycles. You just need to understand them. And you buy the dip, you sell the rip. Yes, absolutely. Wonderful. Thank you so much. All righty.